right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We are going to be going through um, and doing a bit of a show and tell in today's episode. We each brought some topics that we're going to discuss. We're going to go around the horn and present those topics to uh, to the group. Neil is here. Welcome. Thank you, Sally. Happy to be here. TC is here. Greetings. The big guy is here. Hello. Good morning. DJ Pie. Hi. How are you? Before we do get going, um, we're also going to do a very rapid-fire show-and-tell version of our favorite Callaway products or stories. Any, any shout-out to any Callaway product you want to do. First thing that came to mind for me, the Odyssey O-Work 7 putter. It's not new. It is an old one. I've flirted with some other ones, but she is my baby, and I love her, and we have had a great relationship this year. What's so, her name? She doesn't, ha- she doesn't have a name. Okay. <laughs> it's a putter, Neil. It doesn't have a name. <laughs> it's disgusting. Neil. She's Come like on. that... that uh... Well, she goes to a different school. Yeah, she's, you know she's, she lives in Canada. <laughs> you guys wouldn't know her. <laughs> DJ, what do you got? Uh, first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, on the content side, the the video we did with Kevin Napier, the truck driver. Um, look that up on our YouTube channel. I believe it's just called The Driver. Part of the reason we love Callaway. They, they hire great people. They have uh, they open their world to us and, and show us kind of what, what they're doing behind the scenes on the PJ Tour. And uh, that's one of my favorite pieces I think we've ever done. So. Big guy? I'll, I'll shout out the Maverick driver. I don't know if I can shout it out enough. Uh, it's been a sensational piece of equipment for me, and I feel more comfortable and confident off the tee than I ever have. TC? I am going to go across the pond, not the pond you're thinking of. We're going to <laughs> Japan. My friends at Callaway Japan. The lake. They're, they're my friends. I don't know if I'm their friend. They, I don't think they know who I am or that I'm at all affiliated with them. So I've gotten a lot of my stuff from Curtis Luck. But uh, they have some of the most outrageous pieces of clothing and attire I think you could ever dream of. So thank you for making it colorful. Neil? I'm going to shout out uh, Quater Shoes. Uh, I guess kind of a sub-brand of Travis Matthew, but all of it rolling up into Callaway. I've struggled with golf shoes and blisters and... Uh, the ringer shoes and the money makers, both golf shoes, uh, are awesome and I would highly recommend them. And they have kind of changed my perspective on the uh, value of having golf shoes instead of just wearing, uh, basketball shoes out there. A lot of comments in the Instagram asking about your guys' shoes yesterday. You and DJ had the Quaders. They're super yeah, comfortable. They're no First blisters. I yesterday, absolutely. I feel locked in. I feel athletic. I feel lean. I feel mean, baby. Um, we are going to start this off, uh, by talking about your own star Wars tweet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to talk about. Like I wasn't was trying to change anybody's mind. Swoop in and say this. Stinks. It was a refreshing Blank take. Statement. I loved it. DJ I, didn't sleep last night. No. Well, I, listen. I don't. I'm not going to ride for anything post really like 1998. But uh, I, I thought it was a, a cheap shot and a blanket statement and just shock jock out of Tron. I wasn't trying to change anybody's mind. That doesn't sound like Tron at all. <laughs> no, no, I love that the replies were like, God, it's good to have the old Tron back. It's good <laughs> to see your fastball again, man. Somebody, the TC like, way think, might need to be rebranded as the contrarian way. <laughs> that That's it, a good point. It wasn't even meant as a contrarian take because I feel like there's a big backlash again. There's an undercurrent, a silent majority against Star Wars that, that thinks it stinks. Well, it's cool of you to speak for that. 
for that. Um, game. Does May the Fourth be with you? All that does that stink? Of course. Did the, all the brands? Well, that was what brought on? it. In. That course. was what brought it up. But that's where I'm saying you got to have more nuance in your discussion. You can't just say this stinks. Period. That, that is his whole brand. Well, he's allowed to do that. He, it, that <laughs> is his. That is his waters. right to do that. It is. But then he, you know, he's going to have some people pushing back on. I started him. the. I started the discussion. Which you know, Tron's not at his best unless he's in the corner, just punching <laughs> out against the mob. Right? The Kill House <laughs> throwing the sock. The sock of Bopham's out. The Kill House is built brick by brick by this stinks tweets from my truck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think the the best reply I got was that it was the embodiment of that gif. The how could you say something so brave? <laughs> so brave? Yeah, it's so, so controversial. <laughs> uh, I, Thank my, you for starting a dialogue. Yeah, my take on that would be like it's just it's dated. And like, Listen, if you sure. look at it from this lens, like you, if you dove in now, it's like, wow, this is kind of dumb. But like at the time, it was probably and also cool. hard when it's you know every what four years, it's just shoved it's just down your throat them, once, yeah. like like very violently. Was it was it an excellent trilogy for sure? Do we need four trilogies of the same story? Probably not. No, probably well, not. It's just like something that becomes Can that popular. So action figures has no chance to do anything bold. With exactly. like the next, it's, quick, it has to be so safe. And I quick get, shout out to Ryan Johnson who was trying to like blow up the whole thing with the last trilogy, and then they had fluffer J.J. Abrams come back in and like <laughs> read, undo <laughs> undo I, all of his stuff. I he totally was trying to get do. everything that it's provided to. It's like the it's like the the NASA program, all the technology that's come from that, all the technology that's come from Star Wars as far as special effects and CGI and all that. Randy, what's what's your Read on all this. You haven't said anything yet. I've never seen a Star Wars in my life. That so. makes sense. Never seen a Star Wars. <laughs> Shout out to Strap Wars. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> no that no makes opinion. Sense. All right, let's get going on, uh, I would say, today's topic, but we don't know what today's topics are. But we do know that Neil is going to start us off. So you have the mic. You have 15 minutes or however much time as you want, really, uh, to, tell, to teach us about something. Tell us about something. What do you want yeah. to talk about? Well, first, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here in your company. Uh, I would like to talk about Bryson DeChambeau and specifically his uh, his weight gain, his uh, his the, fitness these the days. The thick boy. Yeah, I've just been I fall I've been following from a distance, and so I played college football, and I I in between my just personally like my perspective on it, in between my freshman and sophomore year, I think I gained twenty pounds, and uh, in between my sophomore and junior year, I I gained like another fifteen. So I was part of the thick boys there for a little while all healthy weight or is yeah like, like just you know i was deep in the squat rack not skipping leg day deadlifts just you're trying to gain weight for football right and like over the years as i've gotten out of football i've now lost probably since my those days 25 pounds and every, pretty much every pound i've lost i've felt better <laughs> like physically better <laughs> and it's helped my mobility. It, I think it's helped my golf game. I just, I sleep better. Like I don't wake up and feel like I got hit by a train. And during football, I mean, a lot of feeling like you got hit by a train was probably because I was running into people. But I also think it's because, you know, your frame is only supposed to handle so much weight, right? So I'm just curious what he's thinking. I, and, and I don't want to just blanket and be like, this guy's an idiot. So I, I wanted to actually do a little research and see what's... Uh, you know, what's the thought process here from Bryson? So my sources, some if Golf I Digest. Could, before we get started, yeah. it's worth pointing out, Neil has shaved all his hair. He's got a very kind of, you kind of have like the bodybuilder look going back on now. Yeah, but think. like with 25 pounds less than right. I was. Well, maybe you're on the upswing though. I Not know 25 been, pounds less. I know you've been hitting No, the I was 205 What do you weigh now, 180? Well, I went well, 188, so 20 pounds less. 
Right. Seven, seven, seven. I'm just I'm setting the table for 185. You know, it's not actually. a visual medium. I'm, I'm trying to help the people out. You've, yeah. You've been out in the garage gym. You've been, you know. Yeah. But doing a lot of body weight work. Like exactly. I haven't lifted a free weight other than maybe a dumbbell uh, in, I don't know, three or four years. And Mobi- I don't I don't really want yeah. to. Right? Buff like, is out. Mobility is in. Yeah. Right? For sure. For sure. Well, I touch a weight. My, when I, when I think I after doing this, my, my takeaway was range of mobility is definitely in, but strength is in. And mass is out. And Bryson is just, as he tends to do, going completely the opposite. I mean, all right, so first off, my source is Golf Digest, golf.com articles. They're eating this shit. I up. just want to say that. They, this is clickbait niche, okay? <laughs> I want to say mass. Using the word mass is excellent with Bryson with the physics. Maybe yeah. It, maybe it's a mass time. No, it's a mass. It, I yeah. think it really is. Some of his quotes are like, he's, and, and we'll, we'll get to some are, of this. Are you setting baselines for us? Like pre weight gain, like yeah, yeah. give us a sense yes. of okay. So uh, the uh, golf.com, golf digest, as I said, they're loving this stuff. Uh, muscle activation techniques website. So this is the guy he's working with, Greg Roscoff. He's been calling him out. Guy seems like he's got a pretty interesting hashtag process going. So uh, I dove into his his stuff a little bit. Uh, Bryson's Instagram is probably the primary source. <laughs> uh, and Tw- then Twitch. I want to start off though. <laughs> oh yeah, Twitch. But that's he kind of reposts his Twitch stuff. And then a recent Bro Bible article, which is what I want to start with. Uh, quote, even the extremely casual golf fan out there knows Bryson DeChambeau has been bulking up over the past year or so. The 26-year-old has been very vocal about the fact that he's transforming his body into what is essentially a human tank. End quote. So, as of two weeks ago, Bryson weighed in at 239 pounds, up from 195 pounds in late 2019. Jesus. And he says 270 is not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I will be the first to admit when he when he said, hey, I'm going to gain 40 pounds, I think was the initial thing. Not to yeah. preempt you here, but that, I was like, that's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Which Because he said he was going to do it all in this in this time off. I'm going to do it in like the six weeks while I'm off. I'm between put on Vegas and something else. It was right? before the president's cup. Yeah. yeah. So how tall of a guy is he? I believe he's six two. He, like he's right. kind of a unit. Yeah, he's right? a, he's right. a, yeah. in person he this. looks he's yeah. tall. I mean, for he's sure. got a yeah, he's got a nice frame. Yes. So can he carry that weight? I would say, I mean, once you start getting up in the two forty range, like sheesh. I mean, you know, two twenty five, sure. And and to me, there's a little bit of a more is not always better here. Like you know, why not gain ten to fifteen pounds? But when you look at him in these pictures, I mean, he just looks he looks top heavy. He looks off balance. But that's all, you know, from the casual eye from a distance. So he's going after that LaRon Landry bulk. Now he's chasing Saquon, I think the Saquon key Barkley. the key here is he's he what he's doing is chasing distance, right? So uh sounds like he's chasing ball speed. Yeah. Chasing ball like speed. He's, so he's he finding put, it. Um he's put on weight, uh according to the Bro Bible article again, quote <laughs> He's put on weight and was leading the PGA Tour, averaging 321 yards off the tee before the sports world hit pause. So he's gained some yardage off the tee. And just last week, he filmed himself on Twitch, shout out to TC, and Instagram with a 203-mile-per-hour ball speed. And he did it two times in a row. Now, when I watched that, it looked like a world-long drive champion swing. And it didn't look healthy, and it looked like, dude, you're just going to get – you're going to hurt yourself, Right. I will say before the sports world shut down, T five at the Genesis, second solo second in Mexico, and solo fourth at Arnold Palmer. I, for sure. So no, no, no I, I, and that's why I'm I so think he's interested on to something. in this. I'm like, what's what are what's going on here? And then a quote from Bryson 
uh, from golf.com. I'm moving into unprecedented territory when it comes to the PGA Tour. Uh, and he thinks that like 210 miles an hour ball speed is like, you know, on the horizon. What a just a complete middle finger to governing bodies and professional golf this is of like, yeah, I, I figured this is the cheat code. Like, I just got to bulk up and swing really hard. Like, there's yeah, no punishment for I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's, no, I'd yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, it's like some of the golf books you read where it's like, the, the key is distant. Like, if you have the opportunity to hit just the fairway. Get it closer to the hole. Just get it yeah. closer to the hole. The rough doesn't matter. Just bomb it, right? And he's just, you know, he's playing the numbers. So, it also I feels like that, something like, not that this is going to happen overnight, like, soon, but a governing body or the tour or the setup teams or whatever feels like they can kind of flip a switch to neutralize this. Do they have the balls to? <laughs> right. That, but you know what I mean? Like, just as far as, okay, now that we're growing the rough out to asinine levels. Or That's a tour rule. You can't grow it higher than yeah. blah, blah, blah. Because for the rest of Oh, right, right, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, it, but yeah, gosh, it's like, I know that the distance report recently came out and that they're getting ready to address this stuff, hopefully. But what a just complete, like gaming of the system. I think it all comes back to the ball spinning, right? Like right. if... It, Regardless of how far it goes, all right, cool. Like, you can go 400 yards, but if it spins miles offline, then that's something where, you know, like with JT and Ricky playing baladas the other day and saying, God, like that was freaking hard. Well, it's it it's more, I think, it's spinning in the combination of 460cc. Like you're yeah. just not going to miss hit a driver bad which, enough. Which swinging it, you know, 100 and whatever miles an hour and ball speed at, you know, even 190 with a persimmon driver is... A it's, lot different yes, than, or, or even a, a you know a, a titanium driver or a carbon fiber driver that's 200 cc's versus 460. So through uh, 2020, Bryson is T122 in driving accuracy. Last year he was T1 or he was 119 last year. So that's not you know that's through what six tournaments mm-hmm. or I know I guess with the wraparound schedule that would be pretty, eight or nine yeah pretty that's pretty significant number of what rounds. a wild neighborhood to live in in that stat you got. Brant Snedeker, Bryson, Ted Potter, Mav McNeely, Xander Shoffley, Hideki. It's just yeah. a driving accuracy stat means essentially nothing. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't. I, I, I know. I, I it, just that's why I just looked it up just right. to maybe get a sense of it. If um, you're two yards offline on the PGA Tour, you're not in trouble. If you're yeah. 20, you are. Like you don't. You can't live out there. But it, it now with how far the ball goes. Fairways have not been widened. Natural dispersion patterns are going to expand out into the rough. So balls roll into the rough. Can we talk about Bryson's diet? Like, like what what else is going into this besides? So he's got it. Yeah. So that that features into it. He's he's been heavy on the sponsored posts on Instagram. Orgain is his uh, supplement company of choice. So it's you know, uh, I think very Orgain. Check it out. I didn't really look into him. I don't you know. It's it's a suppy company, but he's he's pounding shakes after his workouts. You know, clean, I drink three every day to help keep me strong. You know, clean plant based nutrition. Um, so yeah, I think he's he's deep in the plant based game. Is that the same supplements you take, Randy? Uh, it, is. it is. There's Rand, a quote yeah. in Randy's the golf. deep in the muscle milk. No, there's a quote in the golf. <laughs> I, I believe it was golf.com about his uh, going to the President's Cup. He was eating six thousand calories a day in Australia, uh, and he said he really had a tough time on the flight because they didn't have any. You know, they just had like bad. Couldn't get any calories. Couldn't get any calories. They didn't have. They didn't have the right foods for him on the plane. I was like, didn't you fly private? Like, don't you ask for that stuff ahead of time? I've been fascinated so, at what plane they flew down there. Like, do you fly? There was how many of them? Like six. You know, there was twelve plus the assistant captains plus all that. Like, 
you, you know, I know they re he stopped in Mexico to refuel. Do you fly a like a long range G650 or a global? Uh, that that just blows me away. Anyway, Could all right. So I want to I want to shout. Or I want to I dove into this guy Greg Roscoff. So he is the founder of Matt Muscle Activation Techniques, and Bryson feels he's like a disciple of this guy. They they work on his range of motion and seems to be his personal trainer. I'm not sh sure who else is on the team with the towel guy and the spritzer guy. <laughs> you know, there might be like weight uh, disinfectant guy now. Like who, who knows who's in the gym with him, right? The corona guy. Maybe yeah. the spritzer guy was ahead maybe, of the game and he, he was, was disinfecting. Right? Maybe, maybe he was. Um, so digging around on his site, um, his process looked pretty interesting. Uh, so they, he looks for cause and effect and imbalance within the body and puts a heavy emphasis on range of motion. So an example would be if you have low back pain, most people are like, oh, well, your hamstrings are tight. Like, that's the issue. Whereas this guy's like, no, it's actually probably more of an imbalance with the front side of your body where your hip flexors and your torso flexors are not giving you the range of motion and you don't have any stability. So then your back's doing all the work to keep you stable uh, with all the little muscles and you don't even realize it. So that's my very, very amateur breakdown of, of what I'm seeing. So they, you know, from the Instagram videos, he's doing a ton of trunk twisting he's done it looks like he's working range of motion which is good to see i don't see him in the squat rack which is what i was concerned about i am blown away though that you can gain 45 pounds without getting in a you know deadlift trap bar without doing bench without doing like olympic lifts. olympic lifts and and i just think that as a golfer it's one of the few sports where you have to really consider longevity so a couple things i'm really curious with bryson on is one you gain 40 pounds Right now, it's easy to keep that weight on. He's working out 30 to 45 minutes, then he's hitting balls, and then he says he goes back and works out for another 30 to 45 minutes every day. That's his, that's his regimen. How, when the season starts, does that continue? Does he then fight soreness? Because I just remember coming out of workouts in college and just being constantly sore because you're always trying to... Probably different kinds of workouts, though. Depend, yeah, I mean, what but, but what, the reason I think they have to be similar is because how do you put on that much weight? Right, like you got to well, build your joints. Yeah, so well, that's my next point. Yeah. So, but first, it's like, how do you if you're if to build muscle mass, you have to break the muscle down and then basically eat a bunch of protein, build you know, like build up the muscles and like rebuild them, right? And so that's what creates soreness. Is like you're just kind of you know you're yeah. pushing them to the edge, basically. To your point, has there been one golfer in the history of this game that we've been like, mm, Thank God he bulked up. Yeah. Like, gosh, that I, is I, what saved I, him. I, and that's, that's so it's like my gut is telling me like, man, this is, sure, you're going to hit the ball farther, but the injury thing, it's not so much like, unless he's taking like HGH, then he might get the old pulled hamstrings, which is always a joke in football when like the guys you thought were juicing, they, <laughs> they come up with a pulled hammy, you'd be like, ah, ha, ha, I knew it, juice monkey. To, to be clear, you're not suggesting that. That Bryson is juicy. No, I'm not. I, I'm not suggesting that. But I'm worried about his tendons and his ligaments because when you, you know, when your muscles become like crazy strong, they just start ripping stuff that you can't you can't strengthen that stuff. Like it doesn't. You can keep it flexible, which is like your only hope. And if you're trying to chase 210 miles an hour ball speed, like I I gotta think something's gonna pop at some point, right? Like, and he has a swing similar when I watch Jason Day swing. Where Jason Day, he his fall through everything is so like locked into the ground. There's no give, which I, it just looks like it hurts when he follows through. And Bryson has a similar move to me where it's like, man, there's no give at the end. There's it's no like the opposite of Phil. Yeah, exactly. Or like JT looks like you know he's up on his toes. Like everything's kind of moving around. It's 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 like everything's like 210 miles an hour has to 
in somewhere. Some That's what. Yeah, some exactly. torque issues somewhere. Exactly. So. Can you imagine how how dumb Bryson's gonna look at two seventy when he does that putting grip? <laughs> so he, and or he wears a stupid. He's fucking been hat. very adamant. And, and the other thing is touch. He's very adamant. In the Bro Bible article, he said, "I won't I won't lose any touch around the greens." He's like been very adamant that that's locked in. But I remember trying to go and you know play pickup basketball after like spending you know two months straight working out. It's like. I can't find the rim. You, you know, can't like find all, the backboard. Yeah, like all my everything is recalibrated. Like I don't know my my legs are stronger. I, so it some of it in my gut doesn't line up. Uh, but I don't. Again, I don't want to just blanket be like this guy's an idiot. Like maybe he's onto something. Now, chasing distance as a concept. If we go back to our what if podcast, like the guy you brought up from junior golf, I, I feel like we can all think of guys like oh man, he chased distance and like that's that's what cost him. Right, it's like Philip Francis to to bring in a deep cut analogy. It's like chasing the longest road in Settlers of Catan. Exactly. It's, it's it, listen. It's, it's, it's fool's it's, gold. It's not yeah, worth it's it. It's fool's gold. So here's Bryson doing <laughs> ah, the same two thing. Two points though, man. It's just, um, but the numbers prove out that that's probably what you should be doing. If uh, there's anyone actually that I trust to uh, like chase distance, it's Bryson. Honestly, with the way he the way he works experimentally and calculative and all that stuff. Now I want to leave you guys with one quote, and then I'm and then I'm done. Wait, are we not going to get into any of his individual Instagram posts? I like mean, I can't, where, I can't show the people the Instagram yeah. posts. There was though. one where he broke the net. Yes. <laughs> well, that, I brought up the Twitch one. Um, he encouraged well, the class to do some, some outside playing, reading. He's playing God's Gift, um, the song, and he's like, Oh, 203. It is. That's right. It is God's gift. It's like, oh, my the one, God. That, <laughs> the that, one that he posted the other night. Really lame. Said, the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. By Samuel Johnson. It's a motivational poster right there. So the last quote is, uh, quote, the is thing is. this from Bro Bible the, as well? No, this one was from, I believe this one was from Golf Digest. Quote, the thing is, people normally say, well, you're going to get injured doing this. You're going to get hurt doing this. And yeah, there are going to be some things that pop up. But I'm, luckily, I'm lucky to know a guy like Greg Roscoff. I hurt myself doing a back extension they were probably there probably two, three weeks ago before the hero. And within the next three, four days, I was swinging it at 185 ball speed again. And that was pretty much after I completely threw out my back. So what he's able to do is incredible. So and yeah, my, I'm not worried. My, yeah, my take <laughs> on that was not was like, oh, cool. You, not like, oh, I have this guy, this, you know, shaman. It's, dude, <laughs> like you just threw your back out. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? You know, like that's going to happen again. It's going to keep happening. So... I got a, we had a funny story. We won't say who the source of it was in case they didn't want that. But in a tournament somewhat recently, um, Bryson hit a tee shot and had to had to hit a provisional. And he hits a provisional and just nuts the, the second one. And this guy says, yeah, hey, well, you caught that second one good. And Bryson goes, yeah, that was probably 185, 187 ball speed <laughs> during he's, an actual he's, tournament. He's dialed it. He's all, as he says, he's all about creating benchmarks for himself. Isn't like this he whole... walks off putts so he knows the, that's 30 feet, and then he has a, a feel for, like, what that is. That's a 30-foot stroke. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a way, to, way to play, for Wouldn't sure. he have to retrain himself every time he goes up that's, into one of these bulking sessions, well, so though? To... That's what I was thinking. What I would he... push back on is, like, look at the last three results after yeah. he's been doing this. It's like, no, he clearly I, has I, figured I, it out as he's thing. going. It's... it's in, it is working, but I worry the longevity factor oh, totally. yeah. is where I'm like, yo, this is a, a lifetime sport here. Check so, it out, though. What if he doesn't care about the longevity? 
Mm. I mean, he seems like he does, right? In and out, get grab bunk. He's gonna get bored with it at some point. If you win a major right? or two and get all the money, like, why do I need to do this past 40, 45 years old? Mm. Good point. Like thirty five years old. Yeah, yeah. But then also, like, if you do that, why do you want to feel like shit for the rest? Like, why do you want to have bad joints and like not feel good? Well, that's that's a good question. Okay. Well, I anyway, might sp- I might spend the rest of the day on this muscle activation. This is, this Ross is coughs an absolute. How, how would you how like how would you describe him? Is he a beefcake? Like, what's the what's the well um, the difference between? And I know we want to move on, but the difference between him, like Brooks lost weight for the body issue, right? He got all jacked and then he got cut. Bryson doesn't give a shit about how he, he looks like a complete meat stick. Goon. Like he looks like not even a linebacker. He looks like a... He looks like a peaky blinder. <laughs> yeah. He, no, he looks like a kind of like a D-tackle, like a, a you know, not, a, not so much a D-tackle, but like a second string DN that's just like a hustle guy. You know, it's like he's like backside, like you know, contain. Like, don't lose contain. He's gonna, he's gonna look great when uh, Porath has the great tweet about when he wears like, he's got the hat on it. It looks like he's got like the velour monster <laughs> like tracksuit. Yeah, when he's got that going this year, he's gonna look. <laughs> well, so good. also, all his weight equipment in his garage has his dumb logo on it, which is just like him and his like the profile of his face with his with his hat. It's just, it's a tough scene. That's why the fall, the fall schedule with all these kind of cooler weather events it's, it's gonna be oh, it's ripe gonna be for sweatsuit for season dumb outfits uh all right a couple like quick takeaways i know i know we're moving on but the i have no idea whether this is a good thing a bad thing for him i couldn't possibly say but it's fascinating one agreed two if we keep saying all this stuff about distance and like you know the go- the game's gonna hit this inflection point where like the ball just goes forever like that's the only way to play blah 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 like this literally could be that like he could he could be on the leading edge he could be of for sure like so to your point Sally, like maybe he absolutely is like just the first person who's figured it out maybe well i think the it's flip the flip side of that is i think i mentioned this like when he first like said he was going to do this what if we get to a point like 15 years from now where he just completely falls off a cliff is totally irrelevant and we're doing this podcast we're like god remember bryson was like the best player in the world for like a couple months and then he wanted to put on like 70 pounds <laughs> and he just completely disappeared like that would be anthony kim level yeah, yeah. Well, like where does this end right like this right. 270 like do you guys remember david boston yeah well <laughs> randy and i were talking to andrew whitworth and he's he's an offensive tackle he's like yeah i've lost like 15 pounds the last five years it's like it's you know i play better i'm quicker mm-hmm. like, he doesn't it, live for that much yeah he's like it's all about it's all about quickness and speed for me so I know it pro- I was probably critical of him. I just I I'm I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. So I wanted to to try to, topic. Fi- to try to figure it out a little that bit. Was well done. Excellent stuff. Lifting yourself off the PGA tour is that <laughs> that needs to be the goal. The true lift and separate. <laughs> DJ Pie, you're up next. All right. Well, we're going to be diving into a subject uh both familiar and unfamiliar, I I think/hope. Um we're going to be talking about the Pebble Beach Golf Links. Um TC, I know a much like Star Wars, a place that's uh, <laughs> very ballyhooed and uh, that you have some strong words about. That's a great, great analogy, actually. Um, really strong. Might be, yeah. A couple sources. We're going to be talking specifically about the history of Pebble Beach. You guys know much about how Pebble Beach came to be? Yeah. Well, only that Clint Eastwood invented it. He did. And Bill Murray. He, he, Bill he designed the course. He <laughs> built the hotel by hand. And DA he told point, people DA to stay off his lawn. Uh, We're going to yeah. talk about the, the, that's beginning, the middle and end. Del Monte... The hotel. Uh, the company. 
as well. A little bit. All a little bit we're going to get into holdings. So a, a couple of sources, uh, Golf Digest, a Ron Witten piece that was absolutely delightful. Uh, what you might not know about Pebble Beach. Uh, very colorful, interesting, fun piece. And uh, Neil Hoteling, I believe is his last name. He had a site on the USGA's website, The Origin of Pebble Beach. So let's just dive in. So uh, much like many of these these turn-of-the-century golf courses, uh, kind of starts at the intersection of the hotel industry and the railroad industry. Um, you see a lot of these uh, railroads, turns out we're printing money back in these days. A lot of tycoons in that game. <laughs> tycoons. I, I had a whole note about tycoons <laughs> in here because the, the word tycoon has kind of gone away and it's unfortunate, but... Specifically, we're talking about the Hotel Del Monte, uh, which was opened by tycoons. Uh, Charles Crocker, Mark Hopkins, Collis Huntington, and Leland Stanford. Uh, They were heavyweights with the Central Pacific Railroad. Uh, This hotel, in particular, opened in 1880, and this is right on the the Monterey Peninsula there, probably about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, half a mile from where Pebble Beach is now. The hotel opened, like I said, 1880. The Pebble Beach, as we know it, wouldn't open until about 1919. There were two golf courses attached to the hotel, and for a long time, Pebble Beach was known as uh, Del Monte's second course. I believe it was a nine-hole course when it opened, but I was hard to confirm that in my, my short amount of research. And I should say, tons of books out there about this. This is a very rudimentary course, so if anybody's looking for more info, uh, by all means. But the other course that was there was actually pretty heavily uh, celebrated. It was where the first California Amateur was held, and it was the first time the Western Am ever went west of the Continental Divide was to go play this golf course. So after the aforementioned tycoons died in 1900. Collectively? The, together? No, yeah, it was a murder-suicide fact. <laughs> <laughs> no, the last of them died in 1900. Um, the railroad was sold to a guy named E.H. Harriman, uh, along with all of their vast, vast, vast land holdings, <laughs> which was crazy. So the railroad owned all this land, and then when these guys died, they they basically had to pass that on to somebody and then just liquidate it, um, like figure out, like, okay, where's all – let's sell all this stuff off, and how are we going to uh, – Hide the money. How are we gonna, yeah, how are we going to hide the money? So this was all held in the name of a uh, company called the Pacific Improvement Company, the PIC. So shortly after these guys died, that started to lose money, this company. Uh, and basically, uh, it was Charles Crocker's son who was put in charge of liquidating all of these assets. So he had to find someone to help him do that. The person he turned to was Samuel Finley Brown Morse. Uh, Neil, carrying on the uh, Ivy League football tradition, he was the captain of the Yale National Championship oh, team. Oh, the Eli. Mm, yeah. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Met them on the gridiron four times, yes. Did you guys get any W's? Uh, no. The Yale Bowl. Lost by less than three every year. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember anything about the 1906 team. Because he was a national with Morris as the captain. So the Pacific Improvement Company has like holdings all over the peninsula um, that they're trying to, to divvy up. And Morse, in, after some conversations with a number of amateur and professional golfers, was able to convince this committee the best way to to split up the Monterey section was not to do what they did in Pacific Grove and Carmel, which all of us obviously have been there. You see that the sites, the land sites over there are very small. It's very, very parceled, very, uh, very tight, very tight, very tight pieces of property over in Pacific Grove. Uh, instead, what he said was, why don't we have these big sprawling plots of land over in Monterey 
and we'll build a world-class golf course that will uh, attract. It, it was basically, I mean, it's the the whole entire Florida blueprint there. It's the real estate golf uh, combo. So only, only our land was, was actually good. Only the land was among the most beautiful in the entire world. Yeah. So one key difference, though, was that the goal here was not to make an investment property. It was to make a liquidation property. So they had to basically build, divvy up all these lots and build a golf course and then sell it for a major uh, a major profit. And so one trend that we're going to see here is that Morse, you know, you choose your word, was either very shrewd or cheap or short-sighted uh, on a lot of how he how he did things. So he was really trying to design the golf course on the cheap. Randy, go ahead. What, I'm, is this all in response? I know Neil's boy, the rough rider, Teddy Roosevelt. Is this a response to the trust busting of the At very well late could 1800s, be. early 1900s? Like I said, this is a, it's Randy, a very we can, overview. We can take that offline, actually. Seems like the timing would. Dare mighty things, Randy. I actually wouldn't wrote he have my, been a little. I, I'm earlier. just wondering why you know why the sudden need to liquidate these really valuable. It's a very good. You question. would have thought the yeah. the tycoons would have just passed it right down the uh, the family just tree, right there. on down the line. Yeah, well, uh, lazy kids needed the money because they're not working. Well, it's, it's, well, it's interesting. It was, Stanford, it was the guy's son that was in charge of doing it. So <laughs> Leland Stanford's kind of son didn't get into uh, Harvard. Harvard. And then actually passed away unexpectedly. I wrote my senior thesis on uh, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and Stanford. Their differing strategies for philanthropy. Certainly mentors to the C-suite. So yeah, I was gonna say, you're a bit. Are those the founding fathers of the Marist School? (laughs) (laughs) You're a bit of a. They're not Catholic. Come on, man. A bit of a tycoon scholar yourself. So, like I said, the point was liquidation so they're they're trying to design the golf course as cheap as they could uh which is how they came across the architects that they would eventually use which was jack neville and douglas grant who were amateur golfers uh and more importantly they had explained that they would design the golf course for free why would they design the golf course for free is because in that time uh any professional architects were considered professional golfers by the usga because they were being paid for their their golf knowledge so that was the cheapest way to do it. Uh, this is from uh, Witten's, Ron Witten's piece uh, as well, just another cost-saving thing. Uh, among Morse's money-saving ideas were the use of sheep to clip the grass. Uh, they damaged the greens and soon ended up on the menu. <laughs> and the use of pelican droppings scraped from the rocks as fertilizer, which killed the grass. Uh, he had to be persuaded to hire a real superintendent. But... So Neville and Grant's golf course was the same basic routing. Uh, A lot of the holes were in the same spots. They aimed to get as many holes on the coast as possible, which is why we see eight, nine, ten, kind of all running. I would argue that they're they're along coast. They're not on the coast. Thank you. A very a very important uh, distinction. Uh, But the golf course, as as they laid it out, was barely six thousand yards. Uh, Bunkers were. Very unimaginative, a lot of circle squares, kind of cigar-shaped bunkers. Uh, And there were a few exceptions in the routing. Uh, Nine was a short par four. Ten was a sharp dogleg par five, kind of around that corner that kind of played over a bit of the ocean, which actually sounded pretty cool. Sixteen was only 277 yards. I think now it's around like 450. Uh, And 18 was a 379-yard par four. Now I believe it's a par five. Um, of course, the other major exception to the routing was 
the fifth hole, which looked nothing like it did, like it does right now. Um, this was as he's trying to find the balance of, you know, how do I raise money for this? How do I sell this off? What do I keep? Uh, the lot that sits right above the Stillwater Cove uh, that is now the fifth hole was one of the first ones that he sold. He sold it for $6,000 to William Beatty. Um, it would go on to be worth much more than that. Once Morse realized, oh, shit, I, I need this for the golf course, this guy very understandably refused to sell it back to him. Uh, so <laughs> Grant, Grant and Neville had to design a what was, by all accounts, a very horrible inland par three um, that kind of you had to squeeze through these big trees. Uh, many people called it golf's only dogleg par three. <laughs> uh, Which every every par three that has a tree claims to be exactly, golf's only exactly. dog like par three. Yes. Uh, so Beatty's house eventually he he would pass on, uh, and his house went back on the market in 1941. Uh, Morse didn't have the money. We'll we'll under get back to why Morse stays in power here, but uh, he didn't have the money to buy it, so it remained a private residence until 1995 when Pebble Beach bought the land for. $8 million from not yet. Uh, <laughs> they sold part of that land that they bought off as two different home sites. One of which was bought by Charles Schwab. The and the man. They, they used the rest of the land uh, to design the new par three fifth hole designed, of course, by Mr. Jack Nicholas. I think it's an, it's an abomination. The fifth hole right now, the par three. That's okay. Kind of I mean, it's, it is most definitely it, not an yeah, abomination. It's, like a, <laughs> it's for sure not the first word that came to mind. Warren Beatty, the actor? William Beatty. William Beatty. Yeah. Not so, Beatty. so it wasn't not okay. Actor. Not the Any actor. relation to the actor? I couldn't confirm that right now, but we can, can say? we can look that up. <laughs> Who could say? Yeah. <laughs> Did the article didn't mention that? It seems like they okay, would. Okay, sorry. Yeah, if you go back far enough, we're I was all like, related. Damn, Warren Beatty is <laughs> bucking his head early. So, anyways, back to. The construction of, of the <laughs> golf course. Um, construction was extremely slow because they're trying to do everything on a budget, as, as has been mentioned here. And Morse, at the same time they're building it, he's trying to convince people to buy it. Uh, so one of the people he convinced I thought was interesting was Maurice Heckscher, son of August Heckscher, uh, the builder of Neil? I don't know. Central Park. Uh, oh, I was going to say, Heckscher Fields. And I was like, I know that name. So he... Uh, he came out to see it. Could they couldn't agree on a price? Eventually, this I think this happened a couple times. Morris decided I'll just buy the golf course, or I'll just buy the the whole thing myself. So I think he needed like a year to secure the funding. The board said, "Cool, that would be great." And so he he became the uh, the head honcho. So I believe there's I think there's a statue of him right by the first tee. But question, real quick, please going back to that Stillwater Cove in the fifth hole. Is did he sell the yacht club off at that point too? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, because basically they just own because that's the like strip one of the in most the middle. premium yeah. parts of the land too. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. My research was very golf course focused, so you ask a lot of good questions. So eventually they got all the pieces together. It opened in March of 1918, uh, and <laughs> Witten writes that the opening preview event was a complete disaster. Uh, a dozen pros were invited. Uh, the winner shot 79-75, and everyone was very critical of the Condities. Uh, <laughs> the setting was great, everyone agreed, but there were rocks everywhere, impossible greens, etc. cetera. Uh, so Morse kind of panicked, and this is where anytime you kind of read the history, there's a million architects listed. Uh, over the next 10 years, I think he was kind of just soliciting opinions from 
everybody who walked by. So that's why you had I think McKenzie worked on the eighth and the thirteenth holes, allegedly. Donald Ross made one trip to California. Apparently he weighed in on some stuff. The big one, I think it was Herbert Fowler, uh, was the one who actually decided like, yo, you need to stretch 18 into a par five. You're not using all like the best parts. <laughs> Another person he reached out to was uh, Francis McComas, I believe is the guy's name, uh, a landscape painter um, who penned the famous line, the greatest meeting of land and sea, which was erroneously attributed to Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, and turns out he was not talking about uh, Pebble Beach. He was talking about Point Lobos further down the coast. So anytime you hear anyone say that you can go ahead and and go ahead and shout at them that's a, um, that's a coverage take right ex- exactly <laughs> but anyways reopened uh in 1919 things kind of started to slowly get back into shape uh and then finally the usga decided to have the 1929 usam at pebble beach and before that to get ready that was when the usga i believe kind of strong armed them into retaining chandler egan and robert hunter uh not the the songwriter, the architect, to prepare the golf course, and they kind of turned it into what we see today. Uh, and then the 1920 USAM, uh, or 1929 USAM, which Bobby Jones, right, I think? No, it? Jimmy Johnston. Okay, never mind. So um, they had 10 years to get into shape. They had 10 years to yeah. kind of slowly tweak everything, get it ready to go, and then the <laughs> 1929 USAM was like the big the big coming out party for it. Bobby so. Jones won 24, 25, 27, 28, 30. And Victor Hovland won 29. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know the question you're, you're probably all asking, uh, what happened to the Hotel Del Monte? That's exactly what <laughs> yeah. I was... It burned down. It did burn down. Because um, all hotels but, at this... <laughs> yes, burned down. Exactly. It did burn down, but they rebuilt it. Uh, and in 1942, it was taken... I don't know if this was like a uh, martial law thing, but it was taken over as by the U.S. Navy as a pre-flight school. And so the Navy at this time had gun. had a postgraduate school in, at the Naval Academy at Annapolis. But I think by 1945, uh, everyone was kind of feeling themselves a little bit. And they decided that that Naval Academy was not sufficient for what they needed. Uh, so they decided to buy the Hotel Del Monte and its 627 acres of surrounding land for a campus. This is from the Naval Postgraduate site. Uh, in December of 1951, in a move virtually unparalleled in the history of academia, the postgraduate school moved lock, stock, and wind tunnel across the nation, establishing its current campus in Monterey, California. The coast-to-coast move involved 500 students, about 100 faculty, and thousands of pounds of books and research equipment. Uh, Rear Admiral Edward Herman su- supervised the move uh, that pumped new vitality into the Navy's efforts to advance naval science and technology. The main building of the former Hotel Del Monte, now named Herman Hall, houses principal administrative offices of the Naval Postgraduate School. So I just thought it was funny that they literally just put the whole thing on trucks and moved it coast to coast. The original PXG troops. Exactly. Um, Is that inside the, you know, what, I don't know what It's kind of on the other side of the peninsula. It is, right? And now I think the... uh, a half mile away. That's where they have the language... Defense Language Institute. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. And so there's, if we so ever... The ho- so let me get... The, sorry. The yeah. Hotel Del Monte was never like right by Pebble Beach. Correct. It, it was... But that's know, the, the grand re- scheme That's of the reason Monterey existed. It was right. basically built on the railroad. That was the first thing there. 
And then you mentioned a golf course at the beginning. Was that on? I don't know what happened land? to the other golf course. Uh, if we do a part two, a part two of this book report, there's. I want to know what happened to the first course. Uh, we got to get into all the like the Japanese companies that came in and bought it uh, because that was like the big peak of oh my god Japanese companies are just they're taking over all these American businesses that was like yeah. people use that as like the lightning rod for a lot of that there was like some mega ties to Japanese organized crime apparently Sick. with one of the companies um, and then Uberoth and yeah exactly one of the guys sold one of the guys bought it I'm gonna get the numbers wrong but I think he bought it for like $81 million and ended up having to sell it for like 53 or something. It's like one of the worst business deals of all time. Uh, so we can get into all that and, or, or I could, you know, like the Instagram post, I would encourage people to, to seek out the rest of the story. It's all in the next season of Big Little Lies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I will say it's only fitting that Pebble Beach has like 25 architects <laughs> attached 100%. to it. I think that's very yeah. fitting. It's like the best piece of like American real estate for golf. And it's like, yeah, we just can't get it right. Just like, well, let's get another opinion. You know, it's just like by the masses, right? Exactly. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> you know, I, wa- I wanted to make that point, but also I thought of like the old course, which has also just been touched by a million people. But I think they got it right from yes. the start. Though. Right, yeah. So. Uh, but going back, just a point of clarification, William T. Beatty, President of the Austin Manufacturing Company of Chicago. What do they manufacture? I don't know. That's from the uh, <laughs> president of Prestige Worldwide. <laughs> so, so, anyways, that's that. That concludes. That's right. that's a brief abridged history of Pebble Beach. Thank you. DJ. Thank you very Thank much, you. Mr. Pye. You may you may have your seat. Um, I believe I am next in the queue, and the topic that uh, I have chosen slash was kind of chosen for me. I think it was uh, it was maybe the reason we wanted to do this. Didn't want to lead with this because this this topic is not the most exciting, but a little wonky it's a little it's out there but a lot of golf fans talk about this every single time you know every single week they look at the standings you know how does jordan spieth become number one in the world after missing the cut talking about the fedex cup we're (laughs) we're talking about the official world golf rankings and i think not a lot of people myself included don't really know the intricacies of how it all works so I did some research on it, and I'm going to teach the class on how the official World Golf Rankings work. I'm ready to learn. Any, any acknowledgement of, of how they started, too? Are you going to get into yeah, that I, I kind of skip past that. So it's basically, it was a, there was like the PGA Tour kind of had their own system, and this was kind of the integration of worldwide golf in the 80s. And But really, it was like Mark McCormick and IMG were creating a ranking system that would be basically... Not help identify the best golfers, but help marketability for a lot of players. And they rigged it so that it it <laughs> made they rigged it so it, they made their players. Yeah, it favored their players more. Than and it others. has been tweaked a million times, and there's a history of all the tweaks that have been made to it uh, on the official World Golf Ranking McKenzie site. Worked on it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Chandler Egan came in. They bought it from Charles Schwab. Um, but the first thing to know, and this is a quote from John Paul Newport. This is, this is quoted in Mark Brody's uh, thesis paper, which is going to be a main source for a lot of the information you're going to hear. But first thing you know about the official World Golf Rankings, its primary purpose is not to identify the world's number one or even the top 10. It's to set fields for golf's major championships and other big tournaments in a fair, transparent manner. Okay, so... I've always said this at the top, like you can, you know, you can argue who's number four versus number five. How did this guy pass? That's not really the point. It, it, you know, if you're in the top, if you're ranked 10 in the world versus ranked number one, yeah, that affects your like individual marketability. But 
If you are number 10 in the world, you're getting into any tournament you want. So the big nuances come around that top 50 ranking, which is gets you in the masters. And of course, like around the top 60, top 70 in some of the WGCs and how that, and we're going to get, I'm going to talk about how the rankings work. And then we're going to talk about some of the biases within them um, and how those biases perceived biases most certainly affect that range the most. So at the very top of the world rankings, there's not necessarily biases on any tours, but from spots like 40 to 120, there are extreme biases for a lot of tours. So more than just one tour. So shout out to Lynn. A truly an extreme bias. <laughs> so again, official tournaments from leading professionals, eligible golf tour tours from around the world, as well as major championships, WGCs, Olympic Games, and the World Cup of Golf are eligible for world ranking points and the Hero World Challenge, of course. <laughs> uh, any players competing in these will receive world ranking points, and then there's a bunch of eligible tours. I think there's 32 or 33 tours that get world ranking points. The Abima TV Tour, the All Thailand Golf Tour, the Alps Tour, Asian Development Tour. I'm not going to read them all, but that you get you get the idea. Euro Pro Tour, China Tour, European Challenge Tour, European Tour, PGA Tour, all that good stuff. Uh, PGA Tour Canada, China, all of them get some sense of world ranking points. So, can anyone venture a guess as just to how how do you how do the how do the points work? What are, what are the points? What's the time period in which you earn them? Any answers from the class? It's like a two-year rolling thing, and then it gets but it's weighted. weighted. Yes. Yeah. Well done. Two-year rolling period. Uh, points awarded for each tournament are maintained for a 13-week period uh, to place additional emphasis on recent performances. So anything older than 13 weeks old slowly starts to roll off. It, you apply a multiplier to it. Say it's um, if you got 50 points at the Farmers, and that was three months ago, it might be 0.9 times that 50, and that's what goes into your calculation. After so. thir- after 13 weeks. After 13 weeks, it starts to, it's to roll off. It's 50 points until the 13-week mark, and then it rolls to the 0. 0.9, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7 over time. Correct. Okay. Yes. Which yeah. seems like a good seems like a good system. That's, it is. That seems I well still, thought out. I, 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 I want, I'm trying to separate out the fact from the uh, opinion here. I still think it's a little <laughs> sticky, though. Like I think it lasts a long time. I mean, you can you can live for like a year off of a great previous year. Um, which it's, it's okay, but it's also like for, for what, and I got, everything goes back to that opening statement. It's for setting fields. Right. And a lot of people will say like, when it comes Ryder cup time, when it comes into the year or something like, Oh, he's the seventh ranked player in the world. How do you not take him? But you might be the seventh ranked player because of events that happened six months ago, 12 months ago. And for that, but it goes to the point that official world golf rankings are not a power rankings. It's not. If you wanted power rankings, the Sagarin rankings, which we'll get into a little bit, are a better glimpse into who is playing the best golf in the world, which is Sneaky Webb Simpson. So um, ranking points, again, yeah, decrease in equal decrements um, for the remaining 91 weeks of the two-year ranking period. And then so however many tournaments you play, so you, you earn a certain amount of points, and it all totals up into one number. That number gets divided by your divisor. It's the number of tournaments that you've played. But that number is a minimum of 40. So if you've earned 200 points, but only in 20 events, that 200 is going to get divided by 40 and not 20. Shout, basically cut, shout out to the cat. It cuts your world ranking in half, basically. Does that make sense? Basically, it's saying you can't live off of just a few good tournaments. you got to play four. Well, you got to play 40. It cuts your total. It cuts your... Uh, your number in half, not your world ranking. It does, not your world ranking. Your number of points Correct. in half. Correct. Yeah. So if you if you have twenty great tournaments, that's great. You're still getting divided by forty. So and you got to go play twenty more. And that's 
McCormick and the agents trying to get guys to play a lot. Not necessarily. I think we're kind of past the McCormick part. But is that what is the the they do that to get players to enter more tournaments? Yes, keep feeling strong. Yes, essentially. Yeah. Plus, plus you incentive need a big to play. Yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah, um, but it also has to do with why guys will shoot up the rankings early, right? Shoot up early. Like you'll see a lot of guys like coming out of college will get like the minimum divisor i'm trying to think of how it no it hurts it that it hurts you in that regard so if you're calling morikawa come out and have a bunch of great starts like until you get to 40 events your points still right, really okay. aren't fully counting so it takes a while to get up there and there's also a maximum divisor of a player's last 32 uh, 52 tournaments so so you're, if you're sung jm sung J. patrick reed <laughs> loki has played 59 tournaments the last two years but you takes it takes your last 52 those bottom seven for him do not get counted can, can i back up and ask what's sure. a, what is a decrement was, it's opposite of increment. I never heard that I word just before. That too. Yeah, I've never heard that <laughs> I, word. That's wild. Uh, yeah, it's opposite of an increment. increment. So, so it's like going the other way. Decreasing increment. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was a typo. I'm like, it looked like desecration. I was like, is it that a two week like, segment? Like, yeah. like, a, like a decade? What are we, ta- what are we talking about? Um, the next part <laughs> I learned in doing this, I didn't, I, I never understood how you calculated the strength of field for a tournament. Never knew how it worked. Turns out it works in two different ways. There's a world rating and a home tour rating. Let's focus just on the world rating for right now. If the first ranked player in the world enters a tournament, 45 points, 45 strength of field points are added. Second ranked player, 37. Third ranked player, 32. And you basically end up at a number that represents the strength of field. The players championship has a strength of field in the 800s. The Schwab has a, a strength of field usually in the 400s. Some of the small European tour events have strength of fields in like the 50s and, and 90s, basically. If you don't get any top 200 players, you're not getting the strength of field points in this. You say that in a really, you know, you get a certain look on your face when I'm you say that. I'm just giving you the spectrum of how the strength of field works. I would also say that top heavy with, like, guys can throw off the strength of field. Not throw it off, but you know, one or two guys, yeah, like can add a lot. If you give an appearance fee to DJ to come to Saudi Arabia, that's gonna really impact the strength of the field. There you go. So, Neil, don't (laughs) tread carefully there. Yeah, we don't Um, know that he got an appearance fee, he might have just wanted to play there. The home tour, the the home tour rating is where I honestly I get a little confused. It's based on the number of top 30 ranked players using each tour's end of year final ranking with a value allocated to the position in the top 30. So, basically. Like your top 30, if you have a Euro Tour guy in your top 30, in the top 30, then like there's also that their points are, there's like a rating system that's like worth 15 extra points to get added in off that. It's kind of confusing. That so part. is that is that where a lot of the bias is coming from, you think? Not really. I would it, think that's to keep it from being so lopsided. Yeah, I you know think so. I mean? It's so like, like at least adding some Justin points. Justin Rowe shows up to your event. You know your strength field doesn't like just shoot up artificially. It's it's balanced by yeah who I, else is in the field. I think so. That it doesn't it doesn't drive the calculation that greatly. The world part is what really drives the calculation. Now there the next part here. There is an uh, each eligible golf tour has a minimum first place points level, which comes into effect should the first place points based on the strength of field be, rating be lower than that awarded to each tour like in this chart. So. Based on your strength of field, there's a sliding scale on how many first place points, world ranking points you get. So if you are, I'm just going to throw something out like the Schwab in like 2018, something like that, get like a, a 430. Uh, here, I'll just grab a tournament. 
The DP World Tour Championship in Dubai had a strength of field of 367. The winner of that was John Rahm. He got 52 points. So it's a sliding scale based on the strength of field. Uh, if if that strength of field was 700, that winner might get would get a lot more points than that. Is it, a, is it the same percentage? It I don't know exactly how it slides, but it does. So um, strength of field 659 in the Mexico Championship. Patrick Reed gets 70 points. Okay. okay? That gives you not, it's almost I, like breaking up the purse. Yeah, essentially, it's like a bigger, almost like yeah. yeah, bigger. There's more points available here because the it's strength of stronger. Field. It's what and drives the strength. And because Grupo Salinas, <laughs> our partners at Grupo Salinas provided more. Yeah, and so like yeah, 338 strength of field. Max Homa got 50 world ranking points for winning that event. They should so. allow companies to buy world ranking points. <laughs> now, here is where it it's gets like video games. Exactly. <laughs> How much do we have in the budget? Let's buy 50 more points. That's kind of what they're doing with their parents. <laughs> yeah. Here is where things get a little wonky. <laughs> the European Tour and the PGA Tour are both treated the same in this regard. Every, there's a minimum number of first place points that you have to give out on the Euro Tour and PGA Tour, and that's 24. No matter how shitty your field is. So opposite field event or like opposite the one, like the uh, Barbasol. Yes, yeah. uh, I'm saying, but I'm saying like even the Barbasol is going to get like a better feel than like Madeiras Islands Open or Sicily or things yeah, like yeah. that. Don't you dare too. bring up the Dimension Data Pro app. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you're a European tour event, it. you're getting 24 first place event uh, points no matter what. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty high, pretty high floor. What are uh, some of the other tours? How do they stack up? Uh, other tour, the Japan Golf Tour is 16. Corn Ferry is 16. Australasia 16. Asian Tour 14. Corn Ferry is actually 14. The hybrid events are 16. Uh, Challenge Tours 12 and whatnot. So it's not it's not dramatic, and that's honestly not what drives the biggest variances, but it is just all these things kind of add up in, in a way. But both the PGA Tour and the Euro Tour have a baseline of 24. The minimum of minimum. 24. No tour event really threatens, field-wise threatens hitting, the, hitting that floor, okay. basically. So uh, major championships, 100 first-place points for all of them. Um, so that's a, a separate thing, kind of treated differently from tours because they are co-sanctioned events. How do, how do we treat the players? And the players the BMW, is not PGA, a major, not a player. But those are like elevated status. They're flagship right? events. Yes. Thank you for bringing us to our next point. Uh, <laughs> the six leading tours, PGA Tour, PGA European Tour, Japan Golf Tour, uh, Australasia Tour, and Sunshine Tour and Asian Tour, and the two developmental web.com and European Challenge Tours are awarded a flagship tournament and allocated a higher minimum points level to reflect their status, okay? So for the PGA Tour, the flagship event is? The Players', the players. The players Championship. The which gold is standard. Provided 80, a highest, the minimum is 80 points. So if they don't reach that threshold, they're still going to get 80 first place points. European Tour is the BMW PGA Championship. 64 first place points for that. Lovely, right? It should be, right? It's a flagship event. So I thought quite the, a step down from the players. Yeah, the, I thought the Euro and the PGA were treated they're treated equally on regular events, but not on the flagship. Neil, that's event. a great point. What do you mean? Sorry. So on regular events, there's a there's a low end barrier of 24 mm-hmm. for both PGA yeah. and Euro Tour, but on the flagship event, it's 80 and 64. Correct. I'm just that's that's a curious. Well, dude, you want to di- we can dive into the details if you'd like. Well, I'd love to. The uh, BMW Championship in 2018 gave 64 points to the winner. The, BMW this, PGA? BMW okay. PGA, okay. yes. Uh, the field strength that week was 283, okay? Not good. Not good. The Schwab, that same week, the field strength was 412. 
Justin Rose got 56 points for winning that. The winner of the BMW PGA Championship in 2018 got 64. So they fell well, well below getting to the 64-point minimum, but they're just awarded that because it's a flagship. All right, what are the, what okay. are the minimums for the pretty Japan damning. Tour flagship? Japan Tour is 32, Sunshine Tour 32. Um, that's the Japan Open, the South African Open, the Australian Open, those are all 32. Asian Tour, Indonesian Masters, Corn Ferry Tour Championship is 20. And then the Challenge Tour, the grand final is 17. Here, here comes TC riding the horse in, ready to ride for the Australian Open, getting the same amount as the BMW PGA. National Open, baby. No, <laughs> this I, is bullshit. No. Basically, what comes down to, in a lot of these events on, Euro, on the European Tour, if you win them, you get so many points, okay? Rory, let's just for example, um, he finished tied for third with Brant Snedeker at the Farmers this year. Field strength, 398. He got 19 world ranking points for that. Now, if if you go play a a ter- like a terrible field European tour event, no top 200 players, and you win it, you win 24 points. So, Rory beat several of the top 200 players in the world, gets less points because he's playing on the PGA Tour than he would have gotten it if he would have won the European Tour event. So, that's where some of the bias is coming. Anyway, I'd like to see Rory go prove it then. <laughs> go go win the Euro event. The one a number of them, Mr. Big Shot. So to give you an idea on how the flagship works for the players, so in 2019 they had a strength of field of 882. The winner got 80 points, as it is the flagship. The Dell winner got 70. The Dell match play got 76 points off a field strength of 781. So the players' ranking lines up very well. So with the WGCs, there's no minimum point or there's no minimum or maximum points for the wgc's those just yeah they fluctuate but it's such good fields that they get a shitload of points anyways so just a random random nugget thrown out there this was tweeted on june 16th of 2017 presented without comment alex norin the eighth ranked player in the world has played the weekend in two majors since 2013 i just i I randomly copy pasted that in there so (laughs) (laughs) for for all the grief given on the norin thing Please remember that Alex Renorm was once ranked eighth in the world, and he's now outside the top 100. So, so. can you can you refresh my memory? You were writing that Norin didn't deserve his world ranking because he got all the points on the Euro Tour. I would say it. I don't want to confuse the two. I should not have thrown this in there. I just wanted to throw a dig at. It will confuse the two. That was just like, dude, he, he dominated the European Tour in that stretch. Played great. Looked up, he was eighth in the world without having proven it on a world stage. I think he should not have been able to elevate in the top ten in the world without doing anything major on the world stage. He won like three or four times, right? Five. Five times. Yeah, yes. he won the, He won the BNW PGA. Yeah, got a lot of points for points. that. A lot of points for won that. Won the French Open, mm-hmm. National Open. Won the Ned Bank, the Scottish Open. Ned Bank is The Omega the European Masters, he's won that twice. He won the Omega Dubai Desert Classic. Third at the Dell match play. That's a world stage, I would argue. This that what you when was this? Twenty eighteen. What when in twenty eighteen in the in the spring? Uh, he was fourteen. His his rank was fourteenth after okay. that. Um, T two at the Farmers Insurance Open. My point was, I found it very interesting. You could get into the top ten in the world without making the cut at a major, which I thought was pretty damning. So, anyways, well, in the BMW PGA, T six at the Open Championship. After, that was after that that, that I that I pointed that, that out. That was the literally the next one. <laughs> Dumb question. PGA BMW PGA is the Euro. That's the European Wentworth. players, basically. Okay. Yeah, Wentworth. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's confusing me. Yeah, because there's also a yes PGA event. So BMW championship. So question for you. Yeah. Where is all the where's all the Japan tour 
like how are all these guys getting into WGCs? And we'll get all that? we'll get to some okay. of this here. So this is uh, uh, so Mark Brody is the source of basically all this. In a paper he published in 2012, he asked the question. Uh, he is, of course, the inventor of strokes gained. He dove into the question: Are the official world golf rankings biased? And I don't want to get too much in the in the nerdy stuff with this because you can get really lost. It is a thick thesis, like statistical paper that is not going to be good radio. I would just say that right now. My face is melting. But he created two, what he would call two unbiased biased methods for estimating golfer skill and performance. One is the Sagarin rankings, which is a rankings that comes from Jeff Sagarin, part of Golf Week, that is... It's a black box. We don't know how that is calculated, but he tr- he talks in great detail about how he I trusts the that. Sagarin, no, it's just the matchup based. It's yeah. but there's rent. No, it is matchup based, but there's an algorithm within it. It's not straight matchup based. Um, Jeff's not talking. <laughs> and the he also comes up with this score based skill estimation method, which uses scoring data to estimate golfer skill, taking into account difficulty of the course in each tournament round. So basically, world rankings are based on your finish in a tournament. They're not having to do with your individual rounds and they're not having to do it's if you are 0.1 shots better than someone on the on a to, uh, in an event, you are getting exponentially more world ranking points for that. He does not suggest that the skill-based score-based skill estimate estimation should replace the official world golf rankings. He's just an, analyzing them for bias, okay? I do think that one potentially could be biased because the European Tour objectively place easier courses. Well, that's, this is what this whole thing factors out. So it, it, he lays out several pages of how he accounts for the difficulty of golf courses. It is not straight scoring average, and that's where you can get really, really lost. But comes to this conclusion. Using data from 2002 to 2010 and comparing the result ranks from the official world golf rankings and score-based methods, his method, we find that PGA Tour golfers are penalized by an average of 26 to 37 official world golf ranking positions compared to non-PGA Tour golfers. Whoa. So basically, kind of what I, all I was setting up there, all the points that are, how the points are given out on the, and the main culprits are the Asian Tour and the European Tour. Basically, that's, if you want to rise in the world rankings, and in that range of like 40th to 120th, that's where you would do it. So we're talking, are we going to officially label them? Manipulators. OWGR manipulators. <laughs> yes, they're the manipulators. Okay. Uh, he gives a great example. At the end of 2010, PGA Tour player Nick Watney and Yuta Ikeda of the Japan Tour had roughly the same official world golf rankings. Watney ranked 35th, Ikeda ranked 41st. But according to our skill based uh, score-based skill est- estimation, Watney's mean neutral score was estimated to be 0.98 strokes lower than Ikeda's. That's huge. That's almost a, a, like shot a, basically a full shot. Uh, Watney was ranked 11th on the basis of skill-based score estimation, while Akeda was 75th, a difference of 64 ranking points. Uh, they had a fish, uh, blah, blah, blah. He had a, a much better Sagarin ranking. They teed it up against each other 12 times that year, and Watney beat him 10 times, and they basically came out with the same ranking. And again, it gets like kind of in the weeds on the actual positions, how there's not that much. At the very top, it's not costing people 26 to 37 spots. It is in that range of 40 to 120. And that is a key spot. That's where the Masters is figured out. That's where the top 100 rankings come out. A lot a, a, a is decided on within that period. Now, there's also, he looks at it from different periods. So like from January to December of the following year, two-year rolling period, and June, uh, July to June. 
there is another bias that comes in because the bias against the PGA Tour players is greater for the January to December estimation periods because the PGA Tour season effectively ends well before December. And there's a lot more European and Asian events that go right up to the end of the year. The end of year rankings play out in several different ways. One main one being that the Masters top 50 ranking, you can play the European Tour through the fall. All PGA Tour player points are kind of Cram for the exam at the exactly. last minute. Or you can so, play the Hero World Challenge. Yeah. So, and I don't want to jump the gun, but do you no, have any recommendations? It. Would it just be drop the points, drop the floor on the Euro Tour? I from think... 24 to, to 20? I think... I, I'm hesitant to give recommendations, but over because I specific res- recommendations, no. But overall, I would say the rankings can do a better job at reflecting how many and how frequently you are beating the top players in the world. I think it's asinine that you get 24 points for beating no one in the top 200. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you're playing against a ton of top 200 players, you have to like win or get second in that tournament to get the equal amount of points. Like, that's yeah. something's wrong. So, there. so it's that it's that. Blanket baseline for the tour. the baseline, yes, and just this isn't going to be popular. I I like. I mean, I how golf works. Big prizes at the top, big points at the top, etc. For determining fields, why should you get exponentially more points, world ranking points, for winning a tournament compared to second? Is that the best representation of your skill? You see what I mean? Yeah, totally. Which like, yeah, is why I the, agree. Sa- the Sagarins, we touched on it briefly, but the I know there's an you know an algorithm like you said, but the crux of it is basically matchup. You know, yes. if you finish second, you get one less W than the guy who finished first, but you still get you yes. know 154 Ws. For one the thing I think you have to keep in mind is how to you can't close off the system, right? Where you That's, can't you can't make exactly. it so that somebody who's outside the top 200 mm-hmm. doesn't get those opportunities outside of say sectional qualifying if they, to get into the U.S. Open. But if they did it would seem like it would make like the corn fairy tour a lot stronger. It would seem like it would make the PJ tours position. Well, I think that better. that's the other thing that I really struggle with is with the corn fairy tour, for instance, it doesn't account for those guys well at all in, and even like opposite field events, it doesn't account for those guys well at all because the whole intent is to identify players for the majors the and, big for, events. and for big events. Yeah. The corn, like honestly, I, I have not even ever looked up like world rankings for any corn. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Legit. All I can think of is if you're in the top 500 in the world, you can skip local qualifying for us yeah. open. Like it, there's nothing based like qualification on any corn ferry event. Challenge tour event is not based on your world ranking. It's yeah. like you Q school. Basically. I, I think the other problem that I have is there's, there's all sorts of built in. I call them free crack giveaways. They're yeah. like, like the WGCs for instance, where you can, you can come in, nearly last place, not beat a single player in the field and still get world ranking points. You do not get world ranking points. I mean, last place. No, like I said, nearly last yeah, place. That, like, it, that, they've know. gotten better with that. They've, uh, and it talks about some of that in the paper. If, if you want to read the paper, I do recommend it if you care at all about this world ranking points. It's, it's just an interesting read. Uh, it's just called Is There Bias in the Official World Golf Rankings? And it touches on that. Randy, you're raising your hand. You've been a great student. Thank you, Sally. This is all excellent. Um, I'm... Something that occurs to me, you know, we've seen Brooks Kepka, Peter Peter Uline have 100%. gone over. Why don't more Americans in this, you know, 80 to 300 range go and arbitrage the world ranking points by playing? They 100% Europe? should. Yeah. They get home. One, but I would close the loophole on that. If I'm the PGA Tour, that's like a disaster situation for me. There's also a, There's also some risk in doing that, though, where 
if you do make that jump, but then you don't take advantage of your PGA Tour starts after that, then you're basically it's like a self fulfilling process. You're going back over to Europe. It's a big gamble. Yeah. You you have to be in the. You still got to be in the top. X you got to play good. And yeah. then and then you have to take advantage of those starts that are afforded exactly. you on the PGA Tour yeah. because of that. And just to clarify, like it's not free points over there. Like you like the you the guys on the European Tour, yeah. like they earn points. Like you play, got to play well to earn the points. You're still competing against a ton of top players. It's just the payout is it's out of balance. Like I don't know how you could argue otherwise. If you read this paper, you're like. Okay, yeah, and he thought of this. Oh, well, yeah, he thought, yeah, he kind of thought of that. Too, Which so. I totally, so I totally agree with everything you're saying. But I do think you brought up an interesting point, Tron. That it's kind of the the crux of it is like filling these major fields, and so the organizers of majors they have to basically decide: do we want the literal best players, or do we want like a world? I want a representative field. sample from the and from the world. That's, but that's I the believe decision. that answers the question of is it no, biased? Yes. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's more interesting than you think. Yeah, it is. They have an incentive to make it more worldwide. Exactly. Because it's, they want to penalize people. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they need scapegoats. They need <laughs> to pin the crimes on Can I, I just... It, itchy stop, a, stop watch fingers, man. <laughs> I've got a brain buster for you guys. Okay. There's an American in the top 70 in the world. Is it Kurt Kitayama? Kurt Kitayama is going to be my guess. It's not... Well, actually, he's, he's 68th. But there's okay. somebody beyond Kurt Kitayama. Um... Someone Kim Chan Kim. That's right. 69th. Yeah. Joel Damon 70th. Max Homa 71st. Like that's why I don't even know who Chan Kim is. It's a manipulator. And he's a manipulator. Very so, very manipulative. That'd be a sick two on two match. Joel and Max versus yeah. uh, <laughs> Kurt. Chan the manipulators. Kurt. Yeah. So do I have everyone on my side that the official world golf rankings are biased? I don't think we've ever disputed okay. that. It's just a matter of like I, I I don't feel personally aggrieved by it. I guess. Yeah, I think it's a fun. It's just a. Fun, I don't really either. It's a fun bit. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't like. I don't like. I think actually. it's one of those things where it's like, all right, what's today? I'm gonna be on the opposite side. It's not yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, of course everybody's saying. I like, also say, respect to explain of, the reasons. I also oh. respect the shit out of Norm for like he he won some big ass events and and was punching above his weight on that tour on that tour and then he came <laughs> over here. Nobody cares what you do on that. Lost, tour. It lost, almost lost his car. He played well though. For like a two-week stretch, he played well, and everyone's like, oh, here we go. He could have very well... Solo, how's your nor take? <laughs> he got... He could have very well, like, lost his magic on the Euro Tour, too. I mean, that's, like, he played well for a three, three or four-year stretch where he was on a heater. He had, like, a great nine-month stretch. He's also, like, low-key kind of old. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's where I was just kind of like, all right... If you're the eighth ranked player in the world, come on over to the, the PGA. At least, at least he would have stayed in the top fifty if he was that deserving. He's come outside on over the top to one hundred. Catch me, catch me outside. Catch me outside. <laughs> <laughs> it's like come on, like we're not. This wasn't close. This wasn't like oh he hasn't won on the PGA tour. Like no, he is outside the top one hundred. He had to use his his entrance. He got the free entrance thanks to a top fifty ranking at the end of the previous year into Memphis to get free world ranking points, second to last week of the year last year to keep his card. I'm not. I'm all this saying. was very, very much previous. The two years prior, a year nobody's prior, denying prior. that he did win tournaments, though, Trav. This is what I believe you're. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, that. TC, why don't you? Yeah. That was excellent, Solly. Solly, thank you very much. Thank I learned. Okay. I learned a lot there. So mine piggybacks a little bit off of Solly's. I was going to do spo uh, sponsor exemptions, and the more I dug in, a because the tour's website stinks, it's impossible to find relevant data on 
virtually anything you're it's looking a, it, for. It, I, it is a disgrace, <laughs> and it has frustrated me so much guys, over the last couple guys, of years. Guys, easy. Lobbing grenades on the websites. <laughs> Please take it easy. Let us get live with the new one first. Let, let me be clear. Well, like, they're sponsored Neil, by they're CDW. they're a billion-dollar organization. <laughs> yeah. Multi-billion-dollar yeah. organization. So I, I was going to do that. You know, I think we've dumped on Drew Love and... <laughs> We, are we, is this a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't lump us <laughs> in with you, dog. Which I was actually texting with uh, Andy Johnson yesterday. He, he said, first of all, fuck all of you for your Westwood takes, especially you, Randy. Well, I'm glad. I God, Westwood mm, so who, all right, fires me up. His question was, who's the, who's the best active player not to want a major? Um, I, keep going with yours. That was his an argument answer. was he won't have an answer for that. And that's, <laughs> but it's not what Westwood doesn't come to mind. Best I mean, active player to have not won a major John Rom. Yeah. Rom is a good answer. Okay. <laughs> like, but I think the, the, the question is but, almost always framed as like, who has played best who has been who's best been on tour is, for, for a long time. Best a is different plus. than most decorated. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Best, best, best active career not to have won a major. Like, mm. you know, I would still put, Westwood's career above Rom's at this point. Yeah, right? like for yeah. total resume. Even okay. though Rom might have more PJ Tour wins. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. So I was going to you know, dig deep into field sizes. None of my tournament director friends really want to go on the record with all this either. So, um, Tron's coming. No, don't talk to him. <laughs> no, they'll, they'll talk all day off the record. Um, you know, basically, the, the way it works is there's two unrestricted spots. I'm talking sponsor exemptions. Yeah, sponsor exemptions. So there's two unrestricted spots. Those are the ones that are kind of the willy-nilly, you know, shady shit going on. Um, it was very critical of Ryan Ruffles back in the day. Like what, when you say shady shit, what does that well, mean? Like, <laughs> you know, like uh, testoral, that, that whole posse. That's what I was, that's what I was hoping. Yeah. So you got to elaborate on that. Uh, yeah, that guy, you know, basically he, he comes are in privy as a to silver dark... sponsor of a tournament or a gold sponsor of a tournament. Most of the time it's an opposite field event, corn fairy events. I'm really not sure how his business model works or makes sense because, like, there's no chance this guy's making money off of it. W what's this guy's name? Who are we talking about? Joe Testino, I think. It's Joe Tessitore, the Monday Night Football. <laughs> if you see guys with the Testoral logo yeah. on their shirts. Okay. So, so Jay so, McLuhan, Wade Binfield, a few other guys. To basically, actually, they, like, underscore this. So, basically, they work with this dude. He and gets them. He's almost, like an, he's almost like an agent. Okay. Where he'll say, I'll pay X number of dollars for you to have a spot, like to get you a sponsor exemption into this tournament. And I'll, like, I'll sponsor your tournament if you give me, you know, two exemptions here. And then so he gets Puerto paid Rico back or out of the earnings. But spoiler alert, like those guys don't have a lot of earnings. So I don't really know how it works. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, you know what? I was going to do that. <laughs> We're not going to do that, though. We're not going to do that. So oh, that <laughs> were you scared to name names? <laughs> Lamaki is coming. At <laughs> no, I, I wasn't scared. God, that doesn't get enough. That doesn't get enough run. Um, you know, also I felt like you this know this commercial didn't get enough run. <laughs> I know like, yeah, that oh, I glossed over. Sick. You know, and, and like Ruffles is playing really well on the Corn Fairy Tour now, so I don't want to. I don't want to beat a dead horse with the whole sponsor exemption thing. And then I thought about priority ranking. I'm like, hey, you know, how does this factor into priority ranking? Because the whole tour priority ranking and reshuffles and structure is the most Byzantine, like, you know, uh, political gerrymandered thing I think I've ever seen before. But in the midst of all this coronavirus stuff, there is, it's, it's in flux for the foreseeable future. 
Um, and granted, they are they're bending over backwards to help the Zach Johnsons of the world keep their card for another year or two. Um, you know, instead of having to earn it, they've gerrymandered the JJ Henry Purple Mamba. 300 cuts made. Are we going to get to the point? So Anyway, so we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. So what are we going to do? Yeah. I want to talk about the future of the European tour and how mm. that looks in the next two years. Three years. I think there's four possible outcomes. All right. Got the Global Golf Post. I don't normally get too deep into it. Clicked on it this week. Came out Monday. And a bunch of uh, – there was like six articles in there basically focused around this. Uh, a couple of them written by John Hopkins. Um, Shout out. The big you. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, going into the finances of the European tour, he said, quote, here's a question. Does the European tour have any money? And the answer is, it depends on what you mean by money. <laughs> That's his lead for that one. So your definition of is. This is the same guy that that oh, came on the 2018 uh, Fox broadcast for the U.S. Open and called Phil Mickelson an ass. <laughs> he's the best. Yeah, he's awesome. I listen to your podcast. Yeah, I listen to your podcast. <laughs> we met him in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. And he was in on the bus, on, on the media shuttle. And he, he was kind of picking our brains. Hey, what do you guys do? Oh, I've heard of you. Okay. And then... See him the next day on the bus. I listened to your podcast. <laughs> it's actually quite good. <laughs> He's the most like beautiful British accent. Yeah, so, so the two the, the two guys that really dug deep, Ron Green Jr., John Hopkins on this. Couple nuggets. PGA Tour digging deep into the reserves. What's the appetite for their expansion right now? As far as like there, it seems they tried to paint the tour in kind of a a magnanimous light of saying, "Hey, we're you know." We're not going to go take too much advantage of this right now. We're going to try to, you know, ride this out and make sure all boats rise with the golf community. The big thing with that is I don't think they're dipping into their reserves so much right now with to subsidize yeah, I think they're looking to acquire purses right and everything like that. That you know they've they've probably cut their reserves in half, if not if not substantially more than that, um, just over the last three months. So that's something. Um, the Euro Tour. It sounds like they've had two suitors come along uh over the last couple months and they've rebuffed both of them can we talk about before we get into this too deep why do they have no money and the pj tour does like do we want to dive into that at all that that seems like a starting point yeah so and, and actually i was shocked by since keith pelly came on the european tour has like more than doubled their top line revenues now granted he's increased the staff They've gone from operate like operating five events, like where, where they're the organizer and you know they're collecting all the sponsorship money and everything like that instead of going out to a third party organizer. Uh, they've gone from operating five events to fifteen events in the last three or four years. Um, they brought IMG used to do Euro Tours productions. They brought that in house. I think that's been fairly lucrative. Uh, but yeah, I mean the the big thing has always been the Ryder Cup subsidizes four years worth of it's basically they, they run at a loss uh for three years they they host a Ryder cup every four years in europe and then from there it is a sweepstakes and then that floats them for the next four years until the next Ryder cup which is why you see them go to the most financially <laughs> viable yeah. locations more so than maybe the best golf course same for pj of america for the record but. and so to your question i I don't know. My amateur would be like they just don't have the corporate sponsors, yeah. like the FedEx and. So, like, it, I thought an interesting point from 
one of these articles, Monty was saying how even in continental Europe, he's like during the heyday of his career, he was noticed far less than he is playing Champions Tour out and about in the States. Like a lot of the, you know, Germany, Spain, there's a lot of countries that they play in that, you know, golf is just that much farther down the total. Not even that. I mean, think about also just the logistics of Oman and going to the Middle East. It's like, yeah, expanding new markets. Hopefully that is fruitful in years to come, but that what a money suck that has to be in the present you know, present day. Well, right? the only reason they've gone there is because that's where, that, that's where the money is versus, yeah. you know, so Saudi Arabia probably wasn't their economy. first choice. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. if you think about it, they're, they're Australia, they're in Asia. They're, I mean, they're, they're basically everywhere in the world except the U S they're in Africa. Um, so, so that was a big dumb question here. Yeah. What same tax structure really is the PGA tour? Or? Yeah. I can't get a great, Great sense of that. That's I'm probably sure. tough because you're dealing with so many different exactly. countries. It, it, it is a member-run organization. Like it is player-driven. Play like any sort of player vote would have to happen for any sort of change to occur. So that was kind of one of the big things that they went back on was saying like, "Hey, the top thirty or forty players on either tour may not care because they're probably going to be playing the same schedule, if not even a better schedule." But if you're like a 50 to 125 player on other tour like i'm probably saying hell no because it's going to consolidate and i think the big thing too is like on the pga tour it's it's it was a dirty little secret and now it's kind of coming out it's like there's there's like two different tours in play right you've got the wgc's the fedex cup players memorial colonial um la you got you know probably a dozen events there and then all the opposite field events all the like 3M and Detroit and all those, like that looks more like a corn fairy event compared to the gulf between those events and the top tier events is wider than that between those events and the corn fairy events. Based on like field, that is. I, I don't, I wouldn't say like infrastructure. No, yeah, stuff, yeah, but field, yeah, but yeah, like field and like probably <clears throat> like ratings and like, yeah. you know, because like the top players, these top tournaments are subsidizing the other you know, 75 to 100 players, right? Basically, going back to the Euro Tour, like, they, they've chosen, all right, we're not going to go it alone, or we're we're going to try to go it alone right now. Um, so you said they rebuffed their suitors. There rebuffing was no, these suitors. no uh, indication of who the suitors were? No, there's not. Sorry, I found a little quote from Bob Herrig, if you will. In certain time, in simple times, the European Tour loses money in non-Rider Cup years, makes a tidy profit in years the event is played in the U.S., and then hits the lottery in years the tournament is staged in Europe. Um, this is from 2014, uh, the 2014 Ryder Cup article. Earlier this year, Golf Week reported that the European Tour made more than 14 million pounds in pre-tax profit in 2010, the last time the Ryder Cup was staged in Europe. A year later, when there was no Ryder Cup, it lost more than 2.2 million pounds. And I think part of it, going back to your question about why they're not making money, I think part of it is trying to keep up with the Joneses, like with the the Rolex series, for instance, and, you know, all of that is saying, it, they've tried to do that, they've 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 increased purse sizes substantially in 8 to 10 of the events, and they're still like half of what the biggest PGA Tour events are. Something that occurred to me before we go in another direction, why I, I've always wondered why the Euro Tour doesn't try to get more of a presence in South Korea. With that's the a great question. Popularity Asian. of the women's game, I think Asian like that's that is 
like Asian tour territory. Yeah. I don't know exactly that how that works. That would be like a natural merge though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like create like a Euro-Asia. Yeah. Well, so tour. that was that was one of the, the suggestions was basically the apple of the PGA Tour's eye is the Ryder Cup, right? They're all, they've always been extremely, for lack of a better phrase, butthurt that, <laughs> <laughs> that they're not I involved. That. So when the, when the PGA of America and the PGA Tour split, yeah. basically the PGA Tour got... What what is it? Yeah, the players. The players and I guess like the rest of the competitive like the tour schedule. And the PGA yeah. retained PGA Championship, the Ryder Cup, and I believe the Grand Slam of golf. So you know, I, I would I would love that to be another research topic. The split. The split. That would be a good one. Well, and then and then the PGA of America has basically held the Ryder Cup, or their their marketing rights, right above their head, and said, "All right, cool. Like we can just strip away like the PGA name because we technically own that." And they have a board seat too, uh, on the PGA Tour board. So, um, but one of the things that was floated was kind of a collaboration where um, you, know, you fold some of the Rolex series into PGA Tour, a little bit like uh, the WGCs, kind of expanding those but making them even better. Like the fact that there's not a, a World Golf Championship in mainland Europe would seem. But they they rebuffed this. No, that was, no, that was no. a proposal. No, that... no, no. This is this is just a potential outcome. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of the hybrid model of nobody takes over really. They kind of divvy things up a little bit. You know, they they either, in order to get some of these gains, they either cut the PGA Tour in on the Ryder Cup, say, or something like that. On that end too, the the tour seems to ha- the, the PGA Tour seems to have eyes for Asia, much more than the European Tour. And like Asia and, and Australia, and then divvy it up so that the European tour doubles down on Middle East, Africa, and Europe, which that seems like a logical conclusion. And then you don't have to, because think about this. If the two tours, like let's say the PGA tour bought the European tour outright, how do you merge the two membership <laughs> structures and all the different, like mm. the, the pensions and how, like, because the, the Euro tour guys are always going to be second class citizens in that world. Right, you know the guys that are that are legacy Euro Tour guys. Unless you recrafted the whole thing into like the the World Tour that we've talked about, and then you know you kind of separate it that way, where it's. But then all the you know you've got all these all these guys, like say uh, you know JJ Henry, for instance, like you've got all these guys that have made boatloads of money, have massive pensions on the PGA Tour. They're they're taking a haircut in that scenario, and you're yeah. and you're diluting their share basically. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing, PGL Euro Tour, is like the the ultimate no, yeah, it no seems brainer. To be. It seems like if they want to re- because one of the things that that kind of shocked me with with Hopkins article especially was the relationship between Keith Pelly and Monahan seems to be a lot stronger than their predecessors were. And and I, I, you know from a lot of people I've heard that the two entities really really do not get along and don't like each other. But I've also heard that Pelly and Monahan, like in this Hopkins piece, he said Pelly and Monahan are actually gotten quite close through through all this. Yeah, and then the other thing is just you know, uh, kind of an outright takeover. So it's like there's there's kind of four options. Hostile. Yeah. <laughs> outright takeover PGA of the Euro Tour. Correct. Hmm. Or they just go PGA. out of business. Yeah. PGA Tour takes over the Euro Tour. Yeah. yeah. Not okay. the PGA. Yes. Yeah. Words matter. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, anyway, I just thought it was like we haven't really talked about it in depth, and I thought it was an yeah. interesting. No, thing it is. 
It is, and it's... But it doesn't really fit into any... No, I, 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 I just... I struggle so much to picture some of this stuff, how it all works, membership and all that. Like, Because at the end of the day, all the PGA Tour execs, and, I, and I'm sure the, the uh, Euro Tour execs too, they're bonused on, and they're, and they're compensated on how many playing, how many total playing opportunities they're creating for their membership. And so when you, even with a merger or some sort of thing like that, the more money and the more resources you throw at, at taking care of the top, say, 20 to 40 players in the world, the more you're probably, like, as, as sport gets stratified and this whole pandemic is shining an even bigger light on this of, like, hey, these guys are subsidizing all of these other tournaments and they want a bigger piece of the pie. Well, something's going to have to give, especially now that the pie is getting smaller. Yeah. Right. So there, I think it's, it's going to be interesting over the next, like, I don't, the current situation is not tenable. It's going to change drastically over the next 18, 24 months. Very good. Well done. Good stuff. It'll be interesting to follow. Now to the big guy. Okay. Uh, I want to talk. Now to we're you. out of time for the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will be quick. I know I'm, no, no, no. I'm standing in the way of please, uh, please some you guys in lunch. No. <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorites, uh, speakers. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you guys about the 2010 uh, club championship at Crystal Downs Country Club okay. in Frankfurt, Michigan. It's very mm. strapped course. <laughs> yeah. uh, is it semi? Is it semi-public? Sem- <laughs> this this is this is a story that I have to give a shout out to Don Smith and Dave Trudell, two good friends that I got to know uh, while living and working up in Northern Michigan, and has been memorialized in a book that was written by Brian Mulvaney and Jay Lavender. Uh, And I will give the full title of the book after the presentation. So what makes the 2010 club championship at Crystal Downs, you know, unique in any way? It was Uh, rained out. (laughs) Let's. Was there controversy? No, it's, it's not a controversial story. Um, Let's first of all, let's start with the course itself. Have any of you guys played Crystal Downs? In my mind, hundreds of times. No. Oh, I no. haven't either. Uh, it's a it's a Alistair McKenzie, Perry Maxwell design, uh, 1931. It's located, like I said, in Frankfort, Michigan, which is in the northwest part of the Mitt. Uh, it sits on a little sliver of land between Crystal Lake and Lake Michigan. Uh, just, you know, truly God's country up there. So Crystal Downs is consistently rated one of... The 10, you know, maybe at worst 15 best courses in America. Um, it's It's been as high as uh, number 10 on Golf Digest ranking. Um, Would you say it's pure Michigan? It, it's pure Michigan. It is the, uh, the epitome of pure Michigan. Okay. Yes. Uh, thank you, Neil. <laughs> so what... Going back to my original question, what makes the 2010 club championship at Crystal Downs in any way remarkable? Well, um, it was won by a gentleman named Dr. Roy Vomistek, which I hope I'm getting that last name correct. My sincerest apologies if there's, you know, slightly different. Roy, please reach out. (laughs) There's a slightly different pronunciation there. Let me tell you a little bit about Roy. He, uh, He was born in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, but he grew up outside of Detroit. He uh, 
after high school. He, he got a job caddying uh, in his youth, worked at golf clubs, but was not a serious golfer. After high school, graduated, joined the Army, served overseas. Came back to America stateside um, while in the Army, trained to be a medical technician. Came back stateside, uh, fell in love, got married, started a family, opened up a little medical practice up in Northwest Michigan. And, you know, lived, lived a great life. So let's jump forward on the timeline to 2010. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Roy, but let's, let's dive into the club championship in 2010. It occurred in July, over three days. The club championship starts with an 18-hole stroke play qualifier. Of course, this is no handicaps. This is, you know, uh, scratch golf. Pretty small membership up there too, right? It's probably pretty small. I don't know the exact number of members. Um, of course, it's a, it's a short golf season. It's the type of place where, you know, maybe you're getting five and a half good months of, of golf. Is it one of the places where you can always show up and get a game? <laughs> I, well, I, that's I can't. That's a great question. That's a great question. I can't speak to that. I do know a lot like of their membership. Club. Yeah, is it a <laughs> sure. player's club? It, it it is a players club. I think okay. I think it is a players club. Uh, I I know some of their members. It's the type of club where they have some heavyweight members. I'm sure they have members that belong to other Alistair McKenzie courses, uh, and perhaps you know as they're summering in Michigan, uh, they they play Crystal Downs as so, one is wont to do. Exactly. I believe the Dokito is also a member. So the Dokito is a member, and he was actually. Uh, <laughs> He he was an intern at Crystal Downs. I mean, Crystal Downs is is central to Tom Doak, the architect. He yeah. he touched it up in in 2018. He's done work there. If Doak had a son, I think it would be the Dokito. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be clear, uh, so so quickly back to uh, uh, July 2010. Our first day, day one, is an 18 hole stroke play qualifier. We're looking for the top 15 people, and then the defending champion, the defending club championship automatically gets in. So we're, we're setting a match play of 16 people. It's a good feature. Uh, gets into match play. And, and this, is on, this is on Friday. The first and second rounds, so the first round and quarterfinals are both played on Saturday, and then the semis and finals are played on Sunday. So this is a three-day event uh, with a maximum of five rounds of golf. So Dr. Roy Vomistek, Shoots a 75 to qualify as the third seed into the club championship. It's a comfy 75. He's a sat, he's a side saddle putter, if uh, to give you a little visual. Is that um, legal? It was at this time, I think. Wow, does this derail your whole story? Because no, I don't 2010, is... right? Yeah, well, I mean, at this time it was, and then it wasn't like. Didn't Sam Snead get knocked for it too? Like. What was that? Well, and Bryson was doing it Bryson a couple years ago. The, the USGA they, said clarified the rule that it was yeah. not allowed. I, I, I don't know. Okay. Well, because fair. Bryson was that was only a couple years ago. 2010, I feel very exactly. comfortable okay. that that it was it was legal. So he he goes into his first round match on Saturday morning, gets a nice comfortable victory, and then breezes through his quarterfinal match Saturday afternoon. This sets him up on Sunday morning against the number two seed, a guy, a gentleman by the name of Kelly Robinson, who's a three-time club champion. Any idea what what Doctor? Vomistad's uh, handicap is, or what? What kind of basic he's working with? Basically, scratch. So, a semifinal match against Kelly Robinson, three-time club champion, number two seed. Doctor Roy, as we'll call him, smokes him. It rolls in a birdie putt on fourteen to win the match five and four. 
goes out to his van in the parking lot, gets a quick nap, and then plays, comes back for the finals Sunday afternoon. In the finals, he's up against the number one seed, the nine-time club champion, the defending champion, the course record holder, a guy by the name of Ed Vomistock. Are they related, you might ask? <laughs> Is this going to be like a, do- a doctor and his son go to two different hospitals? Check it out, the doctor's a woman. It was the women's club championship the whole time. They are related. Um, so Dr. Roy, after getting a quick cat nap in his van, rolls out to the first tee. It's a back-and-forth match. Uh, some of the best golf, I'm told, that, that the Crystal Downs membership has ever been treated to. Dr. Roy rolls in a 15-foot par putt on 18 to win the match one up. He has shot a two over 72. This is his fifth round of golf in three days, competitive round of golf in, in three days. He has uh, bested his, his kinship, Ed Vomistak, and he has won the 2010 Crystal Downs Club Championship. Now, I know the question on everybody's mind must be, what, what is so remarkable about this? Dr. Roy Vomistek in 2010 is 78 years old. Wow. Ed Vomistek is his son. Now, let's, let's go back in Dr. Roy's life. He's got the, the last dance chronology going. <laughs> <laughs> Zooming back on the map. Dr. Roy was born in 1932. I said he grew up in Detroit. After, the, uh, after graduating high school, he joined the Army, uh, where he went to Japan. It was after World War II, but at the breakout of the Korean War. He served a few years. Uh, while in Japan, I, f- I thought this tidbit was, was delicious. He befriended a, a Japanese gentleman named Katsuaka Matsumoto. I probably butchered that name. Cassiaka, if you're listening, who, reach out if that's yeah. well, the wrong pronunciation. What, what was so interesting about Mr. Matsumoto, he would become a world champion Kirin bike racer, which is a big sport over in Japan. Dr. Roy, everybody was using bamboo rim tires up to that point. Dr. Roy had heard about some new metal rim tires in the U.S., had some delivered over to Japan by his sister, presented... Uh, Mr. Matsumoto with the metal rimmed wheels on, for his bike, and that helped spur him to become this grand champion, uh, you know, Babe Ruth style of of Jap- Japanese bike racing. Unbelievable! Was he really that good, or was it just the rims? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, um, the rims don't spin anymore. That's the issue. <laughs> as, as the story goes, you know, Dr. Roy was a bike racer too, but he recognized Matsumoto was superior, so he gifted him the metal rims, the superior technology. And Matsumoto would send Dr. Roy some of his world championship trophies as a continual thank you for... Mutual admiration. Exactly. So Dr. Roy comes back stateside. As I said, he gets married. Uh, He quickly has a family. He decides to go back to school where he enrolls uh, at the University of Detroit. On a whim, he befriends somebody. Uh, He's picked up his golf clubs, dusted them off. Like I said, never a... Never a very serious golfer. Had caddied. Had had been around golf courses in, in you know in his childhood. Plays in an intramural tournament at the University of Detroit with his friend at, at his friend's urging and uh, and wins the tournament. And his friend goes, check it out. You should try out for the golf team. 
and they'll give you a scholarship so you don't have to pay for, for school. And that's exactly what Dr. Roy did. So on, on a whim. the water very open this week. <laughs> on a whim, unplanned, he, he makes the University of Detroit golf team. He earns a scholarship. He graduates at 29 years old with a wife and kids. And then over the next couple of years, decides he wants to go to med school. And so at age 31, enters med school, uh, becomes an intern up in Saginaw, Michigan, is not really playing golf at all at this time. And upon graduating from med school as a 36-year-old with, again, with a family, uh, takes an offer from small, small rural town, McBain, Michigan, to become their, essentially their community physician. So he moves up to, to Northwest Michigan, and that's through friends, gets invited out to Crystal Downs, you know, enjoys the course, and eventually joins Crystal Downs as a member himself at 54 years old in 1986. There's one other character that plays a big part in Dr. Roy's golf life. That's Fred Mueller, Mueller. Uh, who was the head pro at Crystal Downs. He was a college golfer himself, had competed on various tours a little bit upon graduation from college. Uh, Fred won the 1981 Michigan Open, and Fred and Roy became fast friends. You can imagine, you know, Roy is a, as a middle-aged guy in his 50s, um, a, kind of a younger head pro. Fred teaches Roy all about the intricacies of game management, you know, how to play competitive golf, something that, you know, besides the, the flinging college, Roy just hasn't done in, you know, 20, 25 years. So Roy falls in love with the game all over again and starts playing competitively. Uh, and his big breakthrough as a 63-year-old comes when Roy wins the 1995 American Senior Match Play in Florida, where he defeats along the way the, the number three and number six ranked senior amateurs in the country at that time. He qualifies for his first USGA, uh, his first U.S. senior amateur at the age of 66. That was in 1998. Uh, he would qualify again in 2004, uh, shooting his age, 72, to qualify as a 72-year-old for the U.S. senior am. And then again in 2005, he would shoot his age, shooting a 73 to qualify for the 2005 U.S. senior am. Uh, what was special about the 2005 senior am is he finally broke through and qualified for match play. So 73-year-old uh, qualifying for match play. He did lose in the first round, though, on, at, on the 19th hole to an eventual semifinalist. So he, he put up a good fight. So uh, in 2010, uh, the, the only other thing before his magical club championship as a 78-year-old, he had entered the 2010 Michigan Senior Open. And as a 78-year-old, was the first-round leader, but he withdrew during the second round in 90-degree weather because of heat exhaustion. Um, and out of an abundance of caution, he was worried. He had had a heart attack earlier in his life, and so had to withdraw from that. But found something in his game that carried him to uh, this memorable club championship. Now, oh, one more thing to mention. And I don't know, maybe one of you guys were here. He he partnered with his son, Ed, to win the 2013 Renaissance Cup. That's stream song. Really? Yeah. Dr. Roy was 81 years old at the time. I, that was, I, I know saw, you played in the one in Michigan, right, DJ? I did. Okay. Uh, different. This would have been uh, post his victory, I believe. But okay. Yeah. Okay. How about that? That's uh, Doak's tournament? Dokita. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. So I mentioned, you know, I... 
I got to know the head pro, uh, Dave Trudell, and one of the big regrets I have is in 2017, Dave was working on uh, on one of my summer visits up to northern Michigan. He was going to try to arrange not only to get me out to Crystal Downs, but he said, I, I want to – I'm going to try to get us to play with this guy, Dr. Roy Vomistek. Uh, you'll love him. Great story. And so that was the first time I heard the story. Now, unfortunately um, and sadly, in September of 2017 – Dr. Roy was in an auto accident and passed away uh, and is no longer with us. Uh, survived by a wife of 63 years, three sons, a daughter. Uh, so I, I think personally, and obviously I was going up in, in late September and, you know, it, it just was obviously awful, awful timing. And I didn't get a chance to do that, but I am grateful for learning this story and there is a book, most all of this information, uh, I don't want to pretend like I'm making it all up, but it's it's a book called Roy, the 78-Year-Old Champion. It's written by Brian Mulvaney and Jay Lavender. Uh, it's available online. It's just a fun little book memorializing, you know, Dr. Roy's life and this this week. So, How old was his son when he, when he, when he kicked his ass? <laughs> um I, I don't know for sure. I want to say like mid forties. Great stuff, man. That's huh? a saga. Yeah. So that's my Randy. That's what's my, the moral of the story, man? I think the moral of the Love story is uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. I, honestly, I, I think while I was putting this together, I'm 36. I think Neil, you're the youngest at at 30. I mean, imagine in 48 years for you, Neil. 42 years for me, like winning a club championship at a top 15 course in, in the country. While putting side saddle. <laughs> While putting side saddle. So, so I think, you know, the, the golfing moral is, hey, there's always time. You want to, you know, you want to be competitive. Or you wanna... the, the flip side of that is there isn't always time because you had a you know, chance to play with them, True. but you weren't able to. True. It's like, life, I'll is, do it. life is precious. I'll do it next year. Ah, that'll come back around. Yeah. Well, maybe it won't. Life is precious for sure. The only thing is maybe – you know, if Bryson does nuke the whole sport and it turns into a, a complete just ball speed fiesta, you yeah. know, maybe these stories go away. Wow. No, maybe, maybe there sure. are more of those stories because all the young guys get hurt. They can never play again. <laughs> That's true. So, all right. Well, that is it for the Show and Tell podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for all your, your preparations. Please assign us grades for our reports, if you will, <laughs> in the replies. Um, and uh, we will see you guys again soon next week. Cheers. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.